it's focus. Where should we focus? And, and what we want to do is we want to make sure that more people realize that road transportation is the lowest hanging fruit. It's still giraffe height, but it's the lowest hanging fruit we have at the moment. And we all need to line ourselves up around decarbonization of road transportation. Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week, I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. My guest this week is an investment specialist with a B in his car bonnet. Paul Winton has a PhD in engineering, is a former McKinsey consultant and is founder of Temple Capital Investment Specialists. His day job is to advise investors on what companies to start or to buy. But 18 months ago, Paul saw news that stopped him in his tracks. He'll tell us about that in a minute. But as a result, he launched the 1.5 Project, a campaign to radically reduce New Zealand's emissions by 2030. An analyst by nature, he's narrowed down the best option for New Zealand to decarbonise transport. Paul Winton, welcome to this climate business. Morning, Vincent. Nice to be here. So this is your moment, Paul. The government is actively seeking ideas for a post-COVID stimulus package and specifically looking at infrastructure. So if you had Shane Jones in the interview with us now, what would you ask him to invest in that would have a material impact on our future emissions? Okay, so um, a really good question and a very opportune question now, given the need for us to both push forward with infrastructure and also create jobs in a hopefully a really green and sustainable way. So thing one is don't just build more roads. We've got enough roads, we've got enough tarmac already. We need to invest in reallocating the current roads that we've got to safer and healthier cyclable pathways. The second thing we need to do, and this starts again with a don't, is don't build satellite towns that will just create transport poverty. And I'd use Drury in in Auckland as an example of this, using 1950s construction techniques. Instead, invest in a pipeline of high density and high quality urban developments within the city that use innovative building techniques and in, in doing so both create jobs but also transform that construction sector to what we actually need for the next century, which is medium and high density construction. So we're all closer together. And the last thing, because I've got a minister in front of me, I would say let's massively increase our planting rate under the Billion Trees program. Let's do that to get more native bush in there. And while we're at it, let's really accelerate the pest eradication dream that has been proposed for 2050. And let's create a really low carbon and biodiverse future in New Zealand. And then on top of that, you've got a passion for, or you've got a a rationale for reducing transport emissions. Tell us about that. Yeah, so if you look at emissions reduction in New Zealand, there's a couple of things that matter. The first thing is, what's our target? And what's really, really clear, the scientists are really clear on this, is that we shouldn't let the world go beyond one and a half degrees above pre-industrial levels. And what that means for New Zealand 
is that we need to reduce our emissions by about 60% by 2030. So it's all about the next 10 years, it's out to 2030. So your question then becomes, well, what's the least hard way of doing that? Because they're probably all gonna be a bit hard. And if you work through the options, what you see is that there's about a third of that reduction uh, we'll get from, the market will get us there anyway. We'll manage the way we do waste better. Uh, electricity is becoming greener and greener and greener. Uh, and some things like Fonterra will no longer be able to, no social license to operate, to use coal to dry baby milk. So that gets about a third of our reduction. Uh, the Billion Trees program gives us about a tenth-ish of our production uh, of our reduction, uh, if it happens. So that's about half. And then on top of that, we've got ag. You could fix this tomorrow with ag, but ag's really challenging. It's highly indebted, and it takes a long time to transform land use from one use to another use. So after a lot of political stouching, we've ended up with a 10% reduction across that. So across all of those, we've got about roughly 60% of the reductions we need by 2030. The only thing we've got left is transport. And transport needs to be almost entirely decarbonized by 2030 in order for New Zealand to play its role in 1.5. And the good thing about transport is it's really doable. All of the solutions exist around the world today already. We just need to take a pick and mix of them and deploy them, albeit much more quickly than is currently proposed, to get to a 1.5 compliant future for New Zealand by 2030. That's superb, thanks. There must be projects that would qualify for uh, a stimulus package that would have a transformative effect on the transport network. I'm thinking, for instance, a charging network or shifting to hydrogen. Uh, are there big scale projects that would at once satisfy this need to shift to a decarbonised transport network, but also create employment uh, and investment that politically could uh, you know, the, the Shane Joneses and the Grant Robertsons could hang their hat on? Yep, yep. So that, um, if I walk through a list of possible projects that we could work to, firstly, urban corridors. Like we like to make, we all want quieter and safer roads and we've seen that now. Like we're walking around the streets kind of forgetting that they used to be dominated by cars. So the thing the sound of um, e economic destruction is quite pleasant, isn't it? So it's, um, it's birds and, and, yes. and kids. <laughs> and I think that's one side of the coin. So what this does is it illustrates what another world might look like. It gives us an experience of what it might look like, albeit within an, a broader experience that we don't want to replicate and we don't want to last too long. But what it does do is it shows what that might look like, a quieter and calmer neighbourhood. And I would, as a first thing, have the Crown committing upwards of $1 to $2 billion to creating safe cycle corridors that allow short trips, the three to five minute uh, kilometre trips, to be cycled or e-scooted or e-cycled. Uh, and as I said, this can start away straight away using cones and planters. And then we, as people uh, become available to do the work, we reallocate that road space to active transport modes. So the second thing we could do is massively, and massively means a five to 10 times increase in patronage, improve the public transport networks. Now, that's underway using things like the, the light rail. The light rail is a great and necessary project in Auckland as an example. 
But the challenge is it doesn't actually soak up that much of the capacity. So if you consider the current infrastructure plans, and I use Auckland as an example because we've dug in deep on that, and the rural story is different, and I'll get back to the rural story later on. But in the urban Auckland story, if we consider rolling out the light, two light rail projects that are proposed, if we double the number of buses, if we, if we roll out the CRL and it's full, in fact, if all of those things are full, that doesn't even address the growth in the population we're expecting in Auckland over the next decade. So those infrastructure projects are good. They're absolutely fabulous and they're necessary and they're nowhere near enough. Are you saying that that would level peg us, it would get us to a kind of a net no growth, but it wouldn't reduce emissions? Absolutely not. So, and and even to 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 stay at no light fleet transport growth on our roads in Auckland, we would also need to become as cycled as the Copenhagen capital region by 2030, which is roughly an 11 times increase in cycling today. So those things are good and necessary for a growing population, but all they do is keep us just where we are. So CRL rolls out and it's full. Both light rails roll out and they're full. Double the number of buses and they're full. And we become as cycled as Copenhagen by 2030. All of those things mean you've just got as many cars on the road today in 2030 as we do today. You've got to do more. You've got to do a lot more. I mean, I, I get the tone of where we're going with this, but you've already described a future that's unlikely to happen in 10 years, right? Uh, well, I think... That future there is challenging. And the reason that we did the analysis, that I did the analysis to illustrate this in the Auckland example is Auckland's really politically ahead of the rest of the country. They've committed to a 50% reduction in emissions by 2030, uh, quite explicitly, which is more so than even the central government has done. But the question becomes, how do you actually achieve mm. that 30% reduction? Mm. Please in tell Auckland, us this, this is going to be possible, because what you've just described sounds like a an impossible future. Uh, it, it's absolutely possible, but it's not possible if we carry on thinking the way that we're thinking at the moment. So what I described there was a story about conventional thinking, light rail, buses, a few more cycles. Um, that will keep us level pegged. And clearly we need a greater transformation than that. And the great thing is that we can actually do that. So the second big project that we need to do is we need to really scale up public transport networks, particularly buses. I talked before about reallocating road space to active transport. We also need to reallocate road space to buses and bus-like public transport tools that can be deployed relatively quickly can be modified easily, unlike light rail mm-hmm. or heavy rail, mm-hmm. and that can be that can really embrace some of the technical solutions, dynamic routing, for example, where uh, the schedule is dependent on who wants to go where, when, um, and so you don't end up with a you end up with some fixed cores in your public transport network, but a more dynamic layer around it. So. That would would contribute as well, but ultimately to get to a 2030 in Auckland and in the urban story that is carbon free, 
we're probably also going to have to massively accelerate the electrification of the remaining uh, electric light fleet vehicles that we have. So priority one, move to active transport. Priority two, move to public transport, prioritising for buses because they're scalable. And priority three, we still need to get around, make sure you're doing that in low carbon light vehicle manners. And the sort of tools that we could use to do this are extremely uh, are well known and well proven around the world. So we have what was proposed as the fee bait rebate scheme. Uh, it wasn't aggressive enough, but what that does is it takes uh, effectively makes polluting cars more expensive and gives that money to people who are buying less polluting or non-polluting electric cars. We also have so it doesn't have to be sorry to interrupt, but it doesn't have to be completely electric. You're saying that it needs to that there needs to be a shift to, from to, to less polluting, so they still could be ice-engined vehicles. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know at some stage one needs to bring reality into this, and uh, the in the Auckland case. What we've argued is that if we do three things, then we can strip 80% of the emissions out of the light fleet. So I'm not talking commercial, but just the light fleet. And those three things are, we need to get Auckland and New Zealand, really, to the level of adoption of new-to-fleet electric vehicles that Norway is at, or was at last year, by 2025. So we need to catch up with Norway over the next six years. And if we do that, then by around 2030, about a third of our cars will be electric. Where is Norway at? So Norway, in terms of their adoption of new-to-fleet electric vehicles, new electric vehicles, last month uh, announced a a greater than 70% of new cars were electric. I think the number might have been 78% last month. Wow. It was... Um, and they have historically, over the last year-ish, been running at about 60%. And what that illustrates really, really well is what can happen when the, when the economics of buying a vehicle make sense. Now, Norway has done that by tilting the playing field using tax. And that is a mechanism that we might use. Feebate rebate is a variant on that. We could also use things like accelerated depreciation. Uh, We could change uh, fringe benefits uh, rules around low or no emissions vehicles. But what we're also seeing is that electric vehicles are becoming both more prevalent, but also their, their sticker costs are coming down. And there was a great piece of work that came out a couple of months ago from Bloomberg New Energy Finance, so probably the most forward thinking in the investment space on this front. And and the analyst who'd been covering this said, opened his story with a statement, we got it wrong again. And he said, in 2017, we thought that they'd hit price parity electric with internal combustion around 2026. In 2020, 2018, we thought it was about 2024. Uh, this year, in the end of 2019, we think it's actually about 2021 to 22, and we fear we've got it wrong again. (laughs) So what you are seeing is this massive global acceleration meeting a latent demand for these things. We're not there yet. Prices are too expensive. 
the supply side isn't yet available. But if you look upstream at the investment that's going into batteries for mobility, and if you look upstream at the investments that's going into new products out of the OEMs, uh, we're going to have a wave of vehicles that by 2025 uh, will mean to buy an internal combustion engine new would mean you were buying a car that was more expensive to buy, more expensive to run, less powerful, worse torque, less range, smells funny, and has a, it doesn't have the same lifespan. When you consider where most of our new to fleet vehicles come in, they come in to uh, lease companies, about 70% of them come into lease companies, primarily business space. Those companies want to decarbonize fast mm -hmm. and transport's the easiest candidate for them. I was going to ask so about the... See that I was going to ask about the impact of the second secondary market. Most people buy a point about fleet, but don't most people buy second-hand cars in New Zealand? And we, you know, for decades have inherited the cast-offs from Japan. <laughs> Very well said, and done so with no emission standards, which is the the second thing we need to target. Is that you know buying a a Corolla here has higher emissions, is less efficient than a Corolla bought in London. Uh, and we need to get on top of that stat uh, and squash our emissions per internal combustion engine. But coming back to that question, one of the issues we do have absolutely is that much of our fleet is secondhand. The average car that sells in the auctions is 60% of them are less than $10,000, 20% of them are less than, sorry, 80% of them are less than $20,000. So most cars are not that expensive and they're definitely not new car prices. And the, the, the challenge we have out of the Japanese fleet is we could say, oh, look, we'll just move across to secondhand electric vehicles out of Japan, is that Japan has been very, very slow in adopting electrification for yes. the fleet. At a country level, they've been prioritizing on hydrogen, and you see that in the car companies who have been pushing hydrogen or quite explicitly saying, look, we think internal combustion will remain the norm for the next decade plus. And because of that, uh, we actually do run into this, I think, in terms of adopting and chasing Norway over the next few years, we're fine for the new fleet. Uh, but we're going to run into problems around the middle of the decade uh, unless Japan sorts itself out in the next year or two and starts moving much more aggressively towards electrification of the fleet. You haven't mentioned freight. What are the impacts of freight on emissions? I'm talking trucks yes. and diesel trains. Yes. So And, and shipping, uh, I suppose. Yeah, so to put some rough numbers to this, our, our gross emissions, so the total we spat into the atmosphere in New Zealand in 2017, the last year we measured, was 81 million tonnes. Of that 81 million tonnes, 14 million uh, was road transportation, and as a comparison, 39 million was the agriculture sector. Uh, so road transportation is the sort of second biggest category. Mm. Of that 14 million, uh, about eight of it is moving around people and about six of it is moving around things. So it is slightly smaller, and this is on the road, slightly smaller than um, the light fleet. A couple of other comments on that. 
Um, the shipping fleet, so moving either coastal shipping or, for example, the various ferries that we have in Auckland, uh, are rounding errors uh, in that. Um, as is rail. Rail, even diesel rail, is a rounding error in our emissions. All of our transport emissions are caused by trucks and your daily commute, basically. Right. Um, so we've talked about your daily commute. And on the truck side, uh, this is an important point. But we argue that it's also a point that will respond much, much more quickly to market signals once supply becomes available. So if you look at the freight industry, that is a, an industry which is very fragmented and it has razor thin margins, razor thin margins. If you look at the emerging uh, trucks and light commercial vehicles that are coming out of the OEMs or forecast to come out of the OEMs over the next year or two, they have total costs of ownership, sort of the, the economic equivalents, um, less than their internal combustion engine counterparts. They have energy costs per kilometer, they're about a third, uh, you know, they last a million kilometers versus two or three hundred thousand kilometers. Um, they have better uh, torque characteristics, which means they um, can actually cover ground faster and bumpy terrain. So those products are actually better, um, and they're economically better as well. Because of those razor-thin margins within the transport and freight sector, people who move into that earlier will have an economic advantage against other people and they will therefore win market share. If you want to stay in the game, you're going to have to move, migrate to those new platforms. So we argue that um, it is very important that freight be decarbonized as well, and that for the most part, the market will get us a long way there. Do they need a, a little shove? In this sort of, you know, the appetite now seems to be from government to throw money at problems. Is there a shove, a tipping point, a, a, a gesture from the government that would make a difference in freight? The challenge we have in the freight space right now uh, in decarbonisation is that the products aren't really available at scale. Uh, so the commercial space has lagged the light fleet by two to five years. So whilst there are a small number of examples of electric or hydrogen vehicles on our roads, they're typically one-offs um, or exper experimental vehicles. So it would be hard to throw money at it right now. And uh, I mean, you could always throw money at it. It would be hard to throw effective money at it right now. Uh, and again, the, you know, if you wanted to accelerate that, then you would do so not so much by putting money, but by tilting the tax playing field, for example. The one area where you might want to put some infrastructure is in the electricity backbone. And uh, there's a great report that came out from Transpower yesterday, and it articulates various scenarios of electrification. And really, decarbonisation of transport is about a large part of it. Uh, is about electrification or hydrogenization if you, you know, if you believe the economics of that will make sense. So the, the electricity sector will need additional investment and there is um, a story to be told about accelerated investment into 
the distribution and transmission networks and the increased investment in cleverness across those, including batteries, that allows us to have a more resilient electricity network that will support the adoption of those sort of electric mobility solutions in the future. And to some extent, there's a parallel if we hark back to the days of um, broadband adoption. Uh, the challenge there was you know, people didn't want to create high bandwidth content because you couldn't deliver the high bandwidth content. And no one wanted to roll out infrastructure for high, band, high bandwidth content because no one was using it. So there's a bit of a chicken egg question. And I think there, there, there could well be a role for the Crown and investing into accelerated electrification or backbone electrification uh, to make it much, much lower cost for companies to adopt this. And an example of that would be accelerated deployment of a large-scale commercial, commercial network around the country uh, so that, that, that most of the highly traveled routes don't have a question or an issue about whether or not they can get charged along the way. You see some of this infrastructure in the likes of Amsterdam where the city is committed to a zero emissions or an ice-free environment and have ploughed a ton of money into charging stations and um, underground uh, services that allow private individuals to set up charging um, plugs outside their houses and so on. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, so that's the that's the residential version of that. It's a light fleet version of that. So my the specific reference before was to the commercial. If we think about the trucks that are running up and down the country, for example, uh, then we need to make sure that point to point between cities, then they are able to be charged uh, in a convenient and in a convenient and cost effective manner for them, and that that infrastructure can be rolled out in the local area the example you've just given there uh, they are great examples the, the slight difference we have in New Zealand is that most people live in homes uh, where they park their car in the home now that's not the case for the apartments it's not the case for the right around the central city but as you get further and further out most people don't have that much trouble getting a plug to a car mm. so the infrastructure challenges is, is different to some of those towns mm. um, we do have a need for that in the central city and we have a gap uh, but further out common thinking is that the existing network will uh, be able to serve those players but it does need to be a smart network you can't have everybody going home and plugging in at six o'clock uh, that would break the network and or require you to build a much bigger network so vector for example has been doing a lot of work on this and you know we need to make sure that we clear the decks so parties like vector can get in and all the lines companies more generally can get in and create a cleverer network that allows us to meet our demands. But again, this is not big money. <laughs> you mentioned hydrogen before, and the government have take a, put, dipped their toe in a hydrogen facility in New Plymouth. Do you have a point of view? My sense about hydrogen is it's uh, it's controversial in decarbonising <laughs> circles. <laughs> It is. It's, well, that's a good way. It's a great way of describing it. It is controversial, and the, and and the reason it's controversial is because of the conversion process. So you take electricity, you convert it to hydrogen, and then in the vehicle you convert it back to electricity before converting it to mechanical engineer um, energy, and that sort of double conversion comes at an additional cost. And so there are many who believe that because of that additional step, 
it'll never be better than just electric to mechanical energy. The caveat to that is that, in, particularly in big vehicles, trucks, boats, um, the energy density, the amount of energy you can store in a little space with not that much weight and hydrogen is much greater than, than battery technology allows for today and seemingly will allow to uh, allow for for a few years so there's there is a compelling story for hydrogen as a uh, part of the mix for heavier freight um, for the light fleet it's harder to see in part because of that energy conversion issue and also because if you look at where the oems are going where the car companies are going there's not that many uh, that are investing heavily in hydrogen. And one of the impediments to that chicken and egg again is that the charging or the refilling infrastructure isn't there in a way that we're used to. You know, it's not a plug on your wall and it's not a service station every couple of kilometres around you. Why do you care about this stuff? You presumably have a great career underway and could put your feet up. Was there a moment that made you shift or you know why why do you give a damn that's <laughs> a, a good question uh, so i uh ended up with a, sort of a, a couple of things happened back in 2018 i had been building a business uh in australia and uh in addition to doing my consulting work and that business really took off uh and it was you know, led by a really, really competent CEO. And for the first time in six, seven, eight years, I was able to not spend every weekend and every evening working on that thing. And so I, I had... What was it, by the way? To, uh, it was a company, it is a company called Kinna Road uh, that um, manufactures surfboards using robotics and advanced manufacturing techniques out of uh, the composites industry, the America's Cup industry here in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, and, um, yeah, and, you know, we moved into the epicentre of surfing globally in the Gold Coast um, and uh, got a really good response to the market and that ramped up and, um, you know, continues to ramp up subject to COVID-19. And so I ended up with this moment where I was thinking, what would the next chapter be? And I was considering setting up a, a fund. I was considering um, going back and doing some behavioral psychology research. Uh, and I was considering doing something in environmental space. And, and around the same time, I collided one morning with an article. Uh, I think it was an article in The Guardian uh, that talked about the loss of biodiversity uh, that was happening as a result of the way we're living our lives. And and I had historically sort of considered myself environmentalist, someone who cared about this, someone who was abreast of it. But it, it really hit me in the face. And I can remember the moment I read that and I thought, wow, this is really, this is really serious. And we, society, are not responding to this anywhere near at the rate and scale that we need to. And so I, I decided as a result of those two things that I was going to commit a lot of my time, I don't know what that meant, to making a meaningful contribution to environment over the next sort of five plus years. And over the next while, I sort of aligned what my skills were and my passion. I decided that climate change was the area that matched most the environmental need, and particularly in New Zealand, but also my skill sets and passion. 
Um, so I embarked on a, uh, on a body of work uh, that sought to understand how New Zealand could, in the most pragmatic way, meet the emerging requirements for the world under a 1.5 degree world. Uh, and out of that was born uh, the 1.5 project, which is a not-for-profit supported by Stephen Tyndall, Philip Mills, and a few other philanthropists, whose purpose is to uh, focus, so make sure that people are doing the things that have the most impact, and amplify the voices of those that are already targeting a 1.5 degree world. So you know, there's enough people that are screaming about climate. We don't need another loud voice but we need more effective voices going to the right place. So we've been working on those two things behind the scenes to make sure that people are focusing on the big rocks and when they are messaging, making sure they're messaging in a way that actually starts to evoke change, not just screaming and spitting across the table <laughs> at someone else. And the result of your prioritisation, transport has come out on top after agriculture. Yes, yep, absolutely. And you think that agriculture is going to look after itself or at least the, you, you, you tell me why you're not interested in agriculture given just the predominance of it in, as our main industry? <laughs> it's a very, very good question. So, And I wouldn't say I'm not interested at all that it's not important at all. But the question around a 1.5 degree future is how do we strip 60% of the emissions out of New Zealand in a decade. It's all about 2030. It's got nothing to do with the net zero 2050. The game is over by 2050. So if that's the question, then what's the most pragmatic path to a 60% reduction by 2030? And if you look across all of the sources of greenhouse gas emissions in New Zealand, and you prioritise them on the basis of technology, is there a solution? Economics, does that solution actually work economically? Politics, is there a stoush around this thing? And lastly, legislation and emerging legislation. What you see is there's a bunch of things that will probably happen under market forces. So, for example, we're moving to better management of uh, waste, uh, landfill waste. We're moving from anaerobic to aerobic or even using it for biofuel. So that pulls a lot of that out by 2030. Mm. We know that the electricity system is decarbonizing under its own steam anyway. Gas and coal are going to be economically challenged. Now, we have a seasonal issue, and you talk to the, the cardigan-wearing engineers in the electricity space. It's a reasonable question, but it, it's going to be a lot less under its own steam. Um, by 2030, Fonterra is not going to be drying baby milk with coal in the South Island. They will have no so -so social license to operate if they carry on doing that. Mm -hmm. And they know that. Mm -hmm. They're working on that. But th that only gets us about a third. If you then jump to the egg story, you could, you could actually solve this overnight if you just didn't replenish the, uh, you know, the cow mainly the cows uh, and mainly dairy that we have in New Zealand. You could solve this problem just by not having as many cows. But you run into some really challenging problems. So the first is the egg sector is heavily indebted. So there's about $65 billion worth of debt attributable to the egg sector at the moment. Uh, and it's tough. You know, the, those, those farmers 
have got it tough and it's only going to get tougher. They've got increasing environmental rules. They're being challenged by alternative proteins from offshore. They are under a lot of pressure socially to clean up their act, yet they haven't got the economics to do that. Mm -hmm. There are alternatives in ag, and there is, for example, there is uh, the, the idea of moving to regenerative farming, and that's a great idea. There is questions about reallocation of land, but none of those things happen fast. Mm. So what we need to do as a country is recognise, decide, and I think the decision has largely been made, is that ag will remain an important part of our future. We need to stop beating up the farmers. We need to support the farmers to transition to a new future. So you know, coming back to your question, one of the things that we can invest in is supporting our farmers migrating to a lower emissions future faster than they would do under market forces alone. And you know, as an example of the sort of things that you do, you know, if you move land from dairy to trees then you're not in some cases you're actually yielding cash but there's a transition cost so how do we manage that transition cost for the farm sector for the for the ag sector the other side of the ag sector is um, it's going to be much harder for them to decarbonize transport now, unlike the urbanites it's not so easy for them to just buy a bike uh, they will need support moving into an electrified future and that's something that they they can embrace so it's not that we don't need to move ag it's just that ag is much harder to move than other things in a 10-year timeline mm, we'll have to carry on moving it 2030 to 2050. do you think the covid shutdown has changed everything and i'm thinking about all your modeling that you've done as pre-covid the political mm. environment that you've described as pre-COVID has the mm. has has the the case for intervention to create a low emissions economy, a decarbonised economy. Has that suddenly got easier or harder as a result of COVID? <laughs> I think this is a really challenging question because you can look at it in two ways. So. Uh, how has it got easier? This, this has demonstrated what's possible in short order should society choose to do it. And as an example here, what many of us has, are succeeding in doing is, is not traveling to a physical central point of work as often or at all now. Now, in some cases that's difficult, but for many people they're finding actually this model is not terrible. And the concept, for example, of the four day week which is starting was starting to be espoused mm. makes a lot of sense a four day week means that one day a week you're probably not traveling to your workplace and even if you are doing a four day work week maybe a couple of those days or even one of those days is a day at home mm. now across those two decisions you've just pulled 40 percent of your to and from work emissions out so that's illustrated the, the possible. It's also things like we have cleaner air, uh, we have less noise, we have safer streets at the moment. So it's experiential. We wander around and we think, actually, this bit's not so bad. <laughs> it's actually not so bad. And terrible. You know, the pictures of the clean canals in Venice are just absolutely um, the transformative, aren't they? 
that absolutely, and it illustrates what can happen if you just get out of the way for a while. <laughs> and you know, and if you can imagine the, the amount of real estate we have dedicated to moving big steel boxes with eighty kilograms of meat in them, is you know, is massive. You know, you just need to look around the empty car parks, you look around the empty streets, and you realise, geez, maybe we could sort of turn a bit of that into linear parks. So how do you know when you've succeeded, Paul, and you've, you know, you're looking your grandchildren in the eyes and you're saying, I did this, what, what was it that you did? Yeah, so what our focus right now on is convincing the, the voices out there that the priority area for decarbonising New Zealand should be transportation. And that in decarbonising transportation, we're actually creating a better transport future that meets our needs and that meets our safety needs, it meets our health needs, it meets accessibility equity needs and that decarbonises. And to your question, how we know we've made a difference, uh, we're testing that. So uh, we are uh, have undertaken a baseline survey. We brought research from George Mason and Yale Universities uh, on climate change communication down to New Zealand at the end of last year. Um, and we surveyed New Zealanders and we surveyed Aucklanders to understand the extent to which they cared about climate and if they did care about climate, the extent to which they... Uh, the, the extent um, to which they were doing stuff and when they were doing stuff, what was it they were doing? And, and what we found is that... Uh, you know, there's not actually that many people who care a lot about climate. Um, and even those that do are often uh, not focusing on the things that actually matter the most. Um, so for example, um, planting trees is awesome and we need more trees to be planted. But to offset the emissions from a year's worth of uh road transportation would require us to plant 1.5 billion trees <laughs> a lot of trees <laughs> like you're putting you're putting a lot of trees in your backyard and similarly people uh, talk about um reducing their uh, flying internal flights around the country account for less than 1 million tons versus the 14 million on our roads mm -hmm. And so again, you come back tons. to priorities. You're you're identifying it's about, the it's, it, it's, it's focus. You know, where should we focus? And and what we want to do is we want to make sure that more people realise that road transportation is the lowest hanging fruit. It's still giraffe height, but it's the lowest hanging fruit we have at the moment. And we all need to line ourselves up around decarbonisation of road transportation. That's a great way to end. Thanks, Paul. I really uh, enjoyed the conversation and well done on 1.5. Let's hope you succeed. How do people get hold of you if they want to engage or uh, get you to speak or and, and how can they help? Great. Thanks for asking. So if they go to www.1.5number1.5number.org.nz, there's contact details in there and a Facebook link. And we would love to hear from people and particularly communicators. This is really a communication and engagement problem. And we're trying to figure out how do we create compelling communications to people so they can understand transport matters and they can understand what they can do today to impact transport. Fantastic. Paul Winton from 1.5, thanks for your time. Thank you very much, Vincent. 
Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.